All right. So Romans 16, we get to close out, uh, at least in part, uh, this amazing letter uh, today. And then next week, Max has the privilege of finishing off those last few verses in the doxology. Um, There's a bunch going on in this text. It's a huge section of text. Um, But there's a few things that I want to point out before we kind of get into the nitty-gritty of all these names uh, and this, like, list, right? Uh, The first thing that I want to note is that uh, when you get to a list of names in Scripture, uh, the temptation is to skip. (laughs) And it's a very tempting temptation, uh, especially if it's early in the morning and you do your Bible study in the morning and, you know, you've gotten just through Romans, all this interesting stuff, all this good theology, uh, and you get to this part where there's a bunch of names and you have no idea what's going on. You can't pronounce half of them because you don't speak uh, Greek. Uh, and it happens in Hebrew as well, uh, in the Old Testament. And you get to this huge section of text with a bunch of names and genealogies and stuff. And the temptation is to go, well, I'll just skip the names I don't know, and I'll kind of fly through this section and make up time uh, and maybe come back to it later. And then you never come back to it later. Um, so what, what I want to encourage you to do is never skip any sections with a lot of names in the Bible. Because every section where you see a list of names, they're there for a reason. Uh, I think about uh, in the letter of Matthew uh, and how it opens up with the genealogy of who Jesus is. And this was Matthew's proof to the people he was writing to that Jesus was who he said he was. In the Old Testament, the genealogy is how we can trace uh, the lineage of David and how we can see that Ruth fits into that lineage. And it kind of pieces together all this historical puzzle that you get in the Old Testament. And you start piecing these names together. Um, And so it is here as well. Uh, When we go back in history, We can figure out things about these different names, things that are true about them, who they were in reality in real life. And what it does is it brings the letter to life for us. So there's a lot of good theology in here. There's a lot of good uh, stuff that's going to teach us a lot from Rome. So this letter, which is often uh, skipped over this portion of it, just because it's not theology and stuff like that, uh, don't skip this. It's really, really good. And so we're going to dive into it and be faithful to teaching exegetically. We're not going to skip this section. We're going to dive right in. And hopefully we'll come out on the other side unscathed. So uh, in this final chapter, we get to see, uh, so far in Romans, we've seen Paul's theology, everything that he believes on justification, on sanctification, on the eventual glorification of the believer. So we get to see his theology at work. Uh, We've seen just recently his ambition as a missionary, uh, what he wants to do going forward and what he has done. So you see Paul as this accomplished guy, right? He's solid in theology. He's solid in missions. He's this very driven person. But now here in 16, we get to see the heart of who Paul was. And Paul was, first and foremost, someone who loved the people of God. And that becomes evident as you read this section here. And often we think that uh, if you are someone who loves theology and someone who is a driven person in life, that you have to run people over to get to your ends. But what's true about Paul and what's true about everyone who's successful in the body is that they love people first and foremost because that's what ministry is about. That's what the body is about, is a love and a passion for people. Um, so you never want to be that person who loves theology more than the people of God, right? And so Paul is going to p- paint that picture for us right here that it just oozes out of who he is, that he loves the people of God. And not only does he love the people of God, he knows the people of God. Remember, he's never been to the church in Rome, but he's going to explicitly name a bunch of people by name and then also by extension of who he knows who everyone associates with. And then also Paul is invested in the people of God. And that becomes evident by other people who he's going to mention here, who he has trained up himself And now they're located in Rome and they're doing ministry as well. So Paul, by extension, has ministered to the people in Rome. And so he considers them to be part of his ministry as well. And so at other points in Romans, uh, we see Paul as the theologian. Right now we're going to see Paul pull back all of his layers and he's going to become someone who's first and foremost a brother in the faith of the family of God. 
And if there's one thing that we can be certain of is that Paul was not alone in his ministry. Right here, uh, you're going to get a list of a bunch of co-laborers, a bunch of people who are also on mission for the kingdom. It becomes very easy to highlight these individual people and put them on pedestals, like they did this all on their own. But the reality is that Paul, even when he's closing off this letter in the, cl- in the closing verses in 21, 22, and 23, he lists eight people that are with him just on the journey itself. And people are hosting him and carrying him along. And so don't think you can ever do the Christian walk on your own. You need people around you. You need people engaging and doing life with you. And in our culture, that's something we have to actively combat because our culture is very, very individualistic. And so chapter 16 breaks up into these three distinct sections. Really, it's actually broken up uh, for convenience because the first big chunk is a bunch of names. And then there's this warning against false teaching. And then there's another grouping of names. And so it's kind of broken up for convenience. Um, So we're going to take on the first two sections of that. And then the third section would be that doxology closing. Uh, So we're going to go look at the greeting that Paul has, the warning that he has on the basis of those people who he's greeting in Rome, and then also the workers that are with Paul. And I'll walk us through that. But the first thing we're going to look at is the warning. And that's going to be, or sorry, the greeting, which is in verse 1 all the way through to verse 16. So I'm going to keep this moving for the sake of time. Um, So in this letter, uh, Paul is going to uh, close with the largest volume of names of any letter that he writes and concludes with. In all of his letters, it's very common for him to say, greet so-and-so, say hi to this person, uh, my greetings and uh, my, con- my love and my uh, commendation goes with this person. But this one has a large volume of names at the end of it. In fact, it stands alone in that regard. There are 26 people who Paul specifically names in that first section. There's eight people who he names in the second section. Uh, and what's interesting as well, and you guys can look at this uh, just as like a broad picture overview, is the use of the word, my beloved, when he's describing people. Uh, Another way to say this is like, I love you. You are my loved, right? Beloved is kind of like an old English term that we would use, but my loved, or the person who I love, I have affection for, Paul uses that in verse 5, 7, 8, 9, and 12 to describe different people. And then also, he talks about uh, not so much uh, people who are in him, but people who are in Christ. And he uses the expression, in Christ or in our Lord, as though the binding of all these people together is in God fully and finally. And he uses that expression in verse 5, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 16 to describe these people and their relationship to him in the body. So I just think that's kind of cool. So you guys are going to be seeing that as we go through this section. Uh, The first person who Paul mentions is Phoebe, and I'm going to read that in uh, verse 1. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and to help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Phoebe uh, is described first and foremost as a sister of Paul. She is recognized as one in the body, a sister to him. This is not a blood relative sister of Paul. This is a sister in Christ. And the way he describes her uh, is as a servant of the church in Sincrea. Now Sincrea uh, was a port city out of Corinth. And we know that Paul was writing this letter from the church in Corinth, most likely on his way back to Jerusalem. So he's writing from Corinth to Rome. Uh, And this is one of the context clues in which we get that uh, he was writing from Corinth because he's commissioning Phoebe out to more likely than not carry this letter from Paul to the church in Rome. Okay, so that's why he's commissioning Phoebe out. He says, I commend to you, Phoebe, our sister. And then he's going to give them instructions on how to take care of Phoebe once she gets to them. And what's going to happen is uh, in the old world, you didn't have copy machines or anything like that. You couldn't make multiple copies of something. So when Paul finishes penning this letter, He's going to entrust the inspired scripture that he just wrote to Phoebe, 
and Phoebe has to take it on a ship from Corinth to Rome. And so it's a dangerous journey. Stuff can go wrong. But Paul says, Phoebe is so trustworthy that I'm going to give her this text. I'm going to have her deliver it. And then the church in Rome is going to receive the text. They're going to open it, and they're going to see it's written with Paul. It's his theology. And at the end, they're going to say, oh, look, the person who delivered this letter, we have to take care of her as well. And this is Paul's way of making sure that Phoebe was well taken care of because they didn't have hotels and they didn't have all these other things. So the only way you were getting taken care of in different cities was if you had a lot of money or you had good connections. And the church was Phoebe's connection to be safe and to be well taken care of while she was there. So uh, one of the other ways that Phoebe is described here is as a servant. Uh, the word here is dekanos. Uh, it's where we get the word deacon or deaconess. In the, in the New Testament, that word dekanos or dikanos, I don't know if I'm saying that right, um, it's not a masculine or a feminine word. And so it's hard to tell whether uh, they're referring to deacon or deaconess. We use, we use yeah, the ESS as like a, a way to feminize the word uh, in our context. But uh, what's evident is that Phoebe was a servant of the church. That's literally how that word translates. And later in Timothy, we get the idea of the office of a deacon or a deaconess, someone who serves the church in an official stance or in an official sense. So Phoebe was a woman who was involved in ministry, uh, and she was on mission constantly. In fact, she had taken care of Paul. She had funded, probably, in many ways, his missions. She had taken care of others as well. She had been a patron of these people. And so not only is she on mission herself, but she is someone who's actively involved in ministry for other people, and she's supporting them. She's funding them. So she was likely someone who was wealthy, um, which is kind of like a cool thing to figure out. And so she was likely a Gentile. And so not only has Phoebe been active uh, in ministry, but she's, again, she's going to be the one who carries this letter to the church in Rome. Uh, And then the last thing that he says, which I think is pretty interesting here about Phoebe, is he said uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of the saints. Now, what's interesting is if you're in the body, how you treat your sister in Christ or your brother in Christ has to be a way in which is worthy or dignified and it's respectful. You are all image bearers of Christ and his spirit dwells within you. So you can't treat other people in the body poorly. And so when he commissions Phoebe out to the church in Rome, he says, treat her in a way that is worthy of the saints. That's a really high calling. And it's something that we can learn a lot from, that we should treat other people in the body with respect, with dignity, and with love. Especially, especially those who are traveling alone, as Phoebe was in this case, to the church in Rome. That you look after one another, you take care of one another. So Phoebe uh, is going to come from Corinth with a commendation from Paul so that the church is going to take care of her every need. Evidently, if she was wealthy, she was probably also doing business in Rome. And so on her way there, she was going to drop off the letter. Um, And then Phoebe's carrying this letter. And then right after this, Paul is going to now start reaching out to greet other people who are likely in the body at Rome. And he's going to name a bunch of individuals. This is where he's going to start naming the 26 people who are in Rome. And he's going to name a group of two different families, three different house churches, And you can learn a lot about the church in Rome just based on these names because they're mostly Gentile names. They're also names that are mostly associated with people of low social standing. So these weren't like wealthy people. And we know this because some of them carry the names of those who would have been slaves. Like Herodian is the name of a slave from the household of Herod. And so you can figure out kind of like how wealthy and how well off these people were in society just based on their names. Also, in the old world, mostly slaves would only carry one name and someone who was royal would have three names usually. And so a lot of these people have only one name. And so you can start to figure out they weren't in high social standing. So the church in Rome has a very interesting makeup. It's really cool. And you can figure this out. And the other thing is that the church in Rome is made up of house churches. So in their ecclesiology, they wouldn't gather all in one location to worship Christ together. They didn't have a building. So what they would do is they would scatter around and they would gather in various house groups. 
And you can see this based on the different stackings of names, which I'll point out in a moment as we go through the other names. Uh, but that's just kind of interesting to note uh, that in our culture and context, we love the idea of everyone gathering in one central building or location. But the church in Rome wasn't like that, and most of the old churches weren't like that. They were kind of scattered all throughout the city. Now, they're all still one church, the church that's in Rome, but they meet as different house churches in the body and scattered throughout. So the first person who he's going to greet is Prisca and Aquila, or you might know them as Priscilla and Aquila from the book of Acts. Now, this is, it, it is Priscilla. Uh, Luke tends to f- favor what's called the diminutive form of the name, which is Priscilla, and then uh, Paul tends to f- favor Prisca when he writes about them. They're mentioned three times by Paul and three times by Luke. Prisca and Aquila every time Paul mentions them, and Priscilla and Aquila every time Luke mentions them. So that's kind of interesting to note, but they are the same people, I assure you. That's not uh, something I'm making up here. Um, what's interesting about Priscilla and Aquila is we know a lot of them from the book of Acts and from Paul's writings. First, we know that Paul met them in Corinth. So remember when I said that the Jews were kicked out of the city of Rome and they were scattered by Nero, and then eventually they start filtering back into Rome, and that's why there's a largely Gentile makeup of the church in Rome, and then the Jews start getting back into that church. Prisca and Aquila were some of the Jews that were initially kicked out of the church in Rome. So Rome was their home. They traveled to Corinth, where Paul bumps into them, and they're both tent makers, which means they have the same vocation. And so then Paul and Prisca and Aquila start doing ministry together. They live together, they do work together, they trade together, and they're discipling people and carrying on the gospel together because they share this vocation. And so he meets them. They're both, t- they're both tent makers by trade. And then also, uh, they're from Rome, and evidently at some point in time when he leaves them, they go back to Rome. So they make their way eventually back to this location. Where we see Paul leave them in Acts is in Ephesus. So in Acts, we get the account of where they get dropped off in Ephesus. We see the ministry they do there. But we never see them eventually make it back here. Uh, But evidently they did because Paul is now greeting them as if they're present in Rome. And so when Paul leaves them in Ephesus, they do a lot of cool things that you can find out about. First off, uh, there's this guy named Apollos in the book of Acts who was teaching like half of the truth of the gospel. He knew the baptism of John and he knew the Old Testament scriptures and that Jesus was the Messiah but he didn't know all the things that came after Jesus' death and resurrection. So what they see is this really intelligent guy who eventually ends up being a pastor of one of the early churches. And Prisca and Aquila see this guy teaching. They take him under their wing. They disciple him. They train him up. They teach him the truth of God's word. And then he becomes one of the most powerful speakers that's going to pastor the early church. So Prisca and Aquila in Ephesus were on mission to disciple people. And so you can see the fruits of what happens with Apollos uh, for the church in Corinth where they Uh, let him go to. Uh, You see that they're considered fellow workers, and at one point in time, they are, uh, they actually stuck out their necks and saved Paul's life, and you see that here. In verse 3, says, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all of the church of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, they stick out their necks for Paul, and one of the things you got to think about is if they never did that, we wouldn't have any of the letters that Paul wrote. Because the, the moment in time in which they're talking about right now, you can read about in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 through 41. Basically, Paul starts preaching, as he usually does. The mob gets riled up. People start throwing him before the council. They want to kill him. And then Prisca and Aquila find a way to house him and get him to escape that city at Ephesus. And so if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have any of the New Testament letters that Paul has. So because of faithful Christians doing what they were supposed to do, sticking their necks out and risking their lives for one another, we have the letters of Paul, thanks to Priscilla and Aquila and their faithfulness in ministry. Also, the, evidently, all the churches of the Gentiles who Paul has just finished traveling around to want to say hi to Prisca and Aquila 
because they probably in their ministry had an impact on almost every single one of those churches because they were faithful to Apollos. They probably discipled many other individuals. So this is a husband and wife pair that were just traveling around in the early world and they were doing whatever they needed to do for the mission of the gospel. So I think that's really cool. Um, Also, based on their travels, they're likely wealthy because they're able to relocate from one city to another and travel and fund themselves. So although that most of these other people we're going to read about aren't very well off, they had some people who were relatively wealthy. Uh, It says also, greet also the church that meets in their house. So that's another way we know they were healthy. They had a house that was big enough to host one of these gatherings of the local church. So Prisca and Aquila, their whole life was on ministry, and it's because of their life that we get people like Apollos and Paul to be alive to write some of these letters. And another thing that you find out about is there's this guy named Epaphroditus who we read about right, right next. And he is, uh, he says, greet my beloved Epaphroditus, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Now you remember, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. He wants to get people who are outside of the Jewish people saved. Asia refers to modern-day Turkey, what we would think of as Turkey. And so Epaphroditus is the first Christian convert outside in Asia. And likely, he's mentioned here with Prisca and Aquila because their ministry had some impact on converting him to faith. So Epaphroditus was probably brought to faith by the ministry of Prisca and Aquila. And now Paul, when writing about Prisca and Aquila, says, oh, by the way, Epaphroditus too, the guy who's the first convert to Christ in Asia. And remember, Paul... uh, is his whole mission is to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so when he sees that one person comes to faith, he's going to remember that first person who comes to faith in Christ as like evidence that the ministry is working and that the gospel is going forth. And so no doubt Epaphroditus was close to Paul's heart. In fact, uh, another way you could translate that uh, as the first convert is the first fruits of the ministry in Asia, which basically just means like he's the first of many who are to come. And there were many who came to faith in Asia after him. Uh, the next person we have on this list is Mary. Uh, all we know about her is uh, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Uh, we know nothing about Mary. It was a super common name uh, in the early world. Everyone was named Mary. There's like six Marys in Jesus' Gospels. They're hard to figure out who's who. Um, but what we do know about her is she has worked hard for the early church. It says Mary who has worked hard for you. Evidently, this is probably someone who's older in age and her work is more so behind her. So it says, had worked hard for you. She's probably an older woman, potentially a widow, which is why she's mentioned here alone. But she's probably someone who has had a life of faithful ministry to the church in Rome. And Paul has heard about her on his travels. And so he's writing to this woman who's probably discipled other people. Most of her work's behind her, but he says he commends her for the work that she has done and the faithful ministry in which she has provided. The next one uh, is another potentially husband-wife pair or potentially a brother-brother pair. I'm just going to read it and then we'll talk about it. It says, Andronicus and Junia, uh, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So this is the section where there's a little bit of criticism or critique or uh, critical scholarship that happens in the book of Rome. Uh, A lot of people will try to make a major out of a minor point that Paul's not trying to make a major out of a minor point of here. Uh, Junia, uh, initially people started translating Junia as potentially a girl's name and then later translators changed it to a male's name. Uh, the truth is that in context, we think Junia is a girl's name, but there's no way to know for certain one way or the other whether it's a girl or a guy's name. It's kind of like you can't prove it either way. Okay? So Andronicus and Junia could have been a husband-wife pair, which is why they'd be mentioned together. Or if Junia is a male's name, Andronicus and Junia would have been like a brother-brother pair that were doing ministry together. 
Okay, so they're either of the same family by brotherly relationship or by husband-wife couple relationship, which is why they're mentioned together. In any case, if Junia is a male, or sorry, if Junia is a female, then the question becomes, what does he mean when he says uh, they are well known to the apostles? Now, people will say that this is evidence that there were a female apostles, capital A, the office of apostle, and that Junia was evidence of one such apostle. Uh, again, the text is not clear either way on what it means when it says uh, well-known to the apostles. There's two ways to translate that. One is uh, they're well-known as apostles, uh, which could just be missionaries. Uh, you don't need to make apostles into an office every single time you read it in Scripture. Uh, another way to read it is they were well-known to the other apostles that were in the early church. And one way in which that would probably be true, and that's the translation that most translators go with, is that they're well-known to the apostles in the early church. That's really the one that makes most sense because the next thing that he says is, and they were in Christ before me. So the apostles who were doing ministry in the early church saw a bunch of people come to faith in the early church, most likely in Jerusalem. And then Andronicus and Junia were probably among that group. So they were well known to the apostles because they were some of the first converts to Christ in the early church. One thing that we know for certain about Andronicus and Junia is they were imprisoned for the gospel, which means that when they were challenged to stand down from their faith or to preach the gospel, they chose to preach the gospel, and so they ended up in prison. Now, that means that either they bumped into Paul while he was in prison, uh, one of the countless times that Paul ended up in prison, or they were with him in prison several different times. All we know is that at least one time, they were in an early Roman prison together. Now, again, if this is a husband-wife pair, they were so committed to the gospel that this husband wasn't going to back down from his ministry and his gospel enough to keep his wife out of prison. That's a big, big sacrifice. It's a big sacrifice especially early prisons. They didn't have what we have now in prisons. Uh, there wasn't a lot of caretaking going on. You're very at risk if you're a woman in a first century prison. So this is a big risk that they undertake, but they said that the gospel is worth proclaiming and worth taking forth. And so they were willing to undertake that risk. And now the last that he says about them is that he says they are in Christ before him. And I, I think about that and I'm like, why would he put that they were in Christ before him? Other than that if you remember anything about Paul and his history, is that he was a persecutor of the early church. The first thing that Paul did when he heard about the gospel and what they called the way in Acts, the people who were believers in Jesus, is he tried to kill them. So if they were in Christ before him, meaning they were Christians before he was converted to faith, most likely at some point in time, Paul would have been after these people to kill them. And so this is evidence of a gospel-transformed life that at one point in time, Paul tried to kill these people or was intending to go forth and kill them but he was converted to faith. And so when he met them after the fact, they're now brothers and sisters, redeemed in Christ, right? You go back to other letters where Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so was Paul. And he remembers this when he writes, they were before me in Christ. Because that points to who the old man of Paul was. And it probably scares him a little bit. And it's just such a good reminder of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And then we get to some other people. Uh, we get Ampelatus and Stachys and Urbanus. Uh, Ampelatus and Stachys, uh, we don't know much about them other than they are my beloved. Uh, these are male names. So Paul is very comfortable saying my beloved, my beloved, those who I love. And that's going to become important in just a moment when Paul is going to address a female in a slightly different way. Uh, but Urbanus is just recognized as a fellow worker, someone who's on mission. Uh, when he says fellow worker, by the way, that doesn't necessarily mean a pastor or another missionary. He's probably just talking about another Christian who does life. And he considers them fellow workers for the gospel, which is proof that there are no such thing as professional Christians in the kingdom of God. 
a lot of times we are convinced that pastors or missionaries are the ones who go do the gospel and everybody else just has to show up to church on Sunday, tithe just enough, and then go out and do your weekly thing. But that's just not true of the early church. Paul considers everyone to be a worker for the gospel. And so should we. Uh, Apelles is the next one that's mentioned. Uh, he is known as the one who is approved in Christ. Now this is interesting language. He's the only one who's mentioned as approved in Christ in this passage. Apelles uh, was likely approved in Christ for one of two reasons, and it, either way is a fair translation. Uh, one way in which he could be approved in Christ is Apelles is an older man, uh, probably someone who was single at the time, and he's one who is mature and someone who is worth commendation because he's been in the faith for a long time. So he's been approved because of his testing through time to be someone who's of firm standing and of good rapport in the early church in Rome. Another thing about Apelles, uh, if they say approved in Christ, it could mean that he stood the test of time through many hard trials and hard, uh, essentially he was probably tested, either by persecution or some other means, but his faith was tested and it stood the test that it endured. And so he says, Apelles, you are approved in Christ, which means you have been confirmed to be in Christ. You've been tested, but you stood the test and you have been faithful through the difficult times. So that's Apelles. Uh, then we get the first family group. Uh, he says, greet the family of Aristobulus. Uh, now this is interesting because he doesn't know them necessarily by name. Uh, he just knows that there is a family of Aristobulus. But what's in, what is interesting is that he doesn't greet Aristobulus. He doesn't say greet Aristobulus and his family. He says greet the family of Aristobulus. So there's two things that could have happened here. One, Aristobulus could have been dead, and it's like his family is around after him. So he was a well-off person. He left a fortune behind, and now his family's uh, the people who are left who are in the church. The more likely thing, which is probably true, is that everyone else in the family or most of the people who were under Aristobulus's household were of the faith, but Aristobulus was not, which means we have evidence here potentially of those who Christ has divided through the message of the gospel, a family divided, which means that the husband or the, the patriarch of the family was not saved, but everyone else or most of the other people were. Uh, Aristobulus is likely the brother of King Herod Agrippa, which means he would have been a very high social standing, which means some of these people in the family who Paul is talking to could be household slaves as well. It doesn't have to be just the bloodline of Aristobulus. It could also be those who Aristobulus owned or those who, people who served in the house of Aristobulus. But again, he's not mentioned. Uh, so this is kind of an interesting thing. And you see the same exact thing, by the way, with Narcissus, who's mentioned just a verse later. Uh, it says, greet those in the household of Narcissus as well. Uh, and it says, again, those in his family don't greet Narcissus himself, which means, again, uh, that he's probably not a Christian, not a believer, but those in his family are. And so when Paul writes this, again, it's another example of a household that would have been divided by the faith. And these are both Gentile names, which means that it's very likely that if the husband were to have converted to faith, that the whole family would have lost social standing. So the fact that they still had social standing means that the husband probably didn't convert to salvation, but everyone else did, which means they had like the money that came with the Roman culture. The husband was supporting them, but he's not of the household of faith, which means he's not personally greeted by Paul here, which is kind of a tragic thing. Uh, the one who I skipped over is Herodian. Uh, that's just the name of a slave of the household of Herod. At this time, the household of Herod would have died off, uh, which means that he's become free as a result of their death. Uh, that's all we know about him. Uh, that, that's just based on his name. We don't have any other text or manuscripts that tell us about who Herodian is. Um, and then we get uh, this group of three, uh, three ladies that are mentioned here. 
Uh, they are considered workers in the Lord or those who have worked in the Lord. We get Tryphania, Tryphosa, and Persis. Uh, now, Tryphania and Tryphosa are likely sisters. Uh, their names mean like delicate and uh, dainty, which means uh, if you want to name twins, uh, that's a pretty good one to go for. Uh, but also, uh, the other one that I thought was more interesting is Persis, just means the Persian woman. That's what the name means. So there's some Persian lady who's in the early church, and we just call her Persis because we think that's a name. And it could have been her name, but also it could be just the Persian woman. And he's just referring to her, and they all know who he's talking about. That's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but when he mentions the Persian woman, or Persis, he says, the beloved. So every time he's talking to a male, he says, my beloved, beloved in me. But when he's talking to a female, someone who's the, the opposite gender of him, he's going to take a more respectful approach, and he's going to say, be the beloved, or beloved by all of us. And that's just the way in which Paul is being above reproach. He's being above the line, right? Because she's mentioned as a single person. He is single at the time. And so they want no room for anything to be misconstrued, right? And again, if you're talking about people who are in the household of faith, when you go to a brother or a sister, you treat them with respect above the line. No questions asked, right? You try to, as, in as many ways as possible, maintain a respectful relationship. So it's cool if I talk to Max and I say, hey man, I love you. And I talk to Tara and I say, hey, I love you. But I wouldn't go to any of the other women in the church and say, I love you. I would say, we love you, or we, we're really happy to have you, things like that. But I would use expressions that are more respectful, expressions that are more uh, above the line, right? Just so nothing could be misconstrued. Now that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't love this person, but again, he just wants nothing to be misconstrued, and so he's being respectful. And so we could learn from that as well. Now we get to Rufus, uh, so we're almost to the end of this section. Uh, Rufus is known as the one who is chosen in the Lord. Now I love the language that's used here, partially because it's used of no one else, right? Rufus as chosen in the Lord. And we'll talk about what chosen in the Lord means in just a second, but the first thing to note is that Rufus is somewhere else in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, in Mark chapter 15, Rufus is more likely than not the guy who's the son of Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene is the guy, if you remember, who had to carry Jesus' cross. And he says that Simon of Cyrene had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. And Rufus would have been a relatively rare name in the Old Testament, which mean, or in the New Testament, which means we're probably talking about the same person. Because they're both Gentiles, they're both mentioned in the early church. And so this letter to Rome was written uh, by Paul early. And so Paul is addressing Rufus, who's present in this early church. And then Mark later writes his gospel to the Gentile church as a defense of who Jesus is. And wouldn't you know it, he mentions the fact that they have someone, by the way, in their presence named Rufus, who happens to be related, related to Simon of Cyrene, who carried Jesus' cross. So Mark uses Rufus, who he writes about later, to prove to these people that, by the way, this is in your lineage. This guy came in contact with Jesus. You know, that's just a cool fact, who Rufus is, right? Now, why does he say Rufus as chosen in the Lord? Well, there's one thing that we know for sure, which is that Alexander, Rufus's brother, is never mentioned as having come to faith. So Simon of Cyrene carries the cross. Alexander and Rufus are both present. And then we know that Rufus later is in the church in Rome as a believer. But Alexander is never mentioned. And so he says Rufus, chosen in the Lord, which means likely one of them was of the faith and one of them was not. And so we here get another picture painted of like a Jacob and Esau situation where they were brothers, they were both raised up most likely by a Christian family, those who were believers, but one of them was chosen and one of them was not. And so one falls away and the other doesn't. 
And so Rufus is marked as chosen in the Lord. And that actually is the reason why we know that Rufus held fast to the faith. But there's no mention of Alexander. So it's a good thing to be chosen. In fact, God chooses all of his people to salvation. And if you are of the household of faith, God has chosen you and appointed you to salvation and to good works and to glorification and to justification. And those are good things. Those are miracles to be celebrated and mercies to be rejoiced in. And the other person we meet here uh, is Rufus's mother, uh, who is also a mother to Paul. Now, that doesn't mean Rufus and Paul were brothers. It means in the household of faith, there was a Christian lady who's Rufus's mother who took care of Paul like she was his own kid. And we know these women in our own church as well, right? She's the person who takes care of everybody else. She feeds them. She says, go to sleep. Here, I'm going to pack you snacks. I'm going to take care of all your needs, right? She's a mother to Paul as well. She likely took care of him in a way just like a mother would. And so this is a mother to the early church, and she was likely a mother to more than just Rufus and Paul, but probably other people as well. But Paul is going to personally reflect on her ministry to him, her motherly ministry to him, and he's going to say, Rufus, who's also Rufus's mother, and she's also a mother to me. In fact, other translations, he'll say, greet Rufus's mother and my mother as well. So that's how it will translate in like the NASB. So those are, that's kind of really cool uh, that Paul can say that about someone else's mother, that they were so, uh, such a blessing to him. And then we get two lists of names who we know almost nothing about, uh, but it's Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers. This was likely one gathering of a house church. So this is grouped together, these names are grouped together as one house church that would have likely met. So Paul's naming people who are in this circle over here. And then he's going to say, oh, and by the way, there's this other house church, and that's Philegius, Julia, Nerus, and Nerus' sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. And this is another gathering of a local house church. So three house churches have been identified here by Paul personally. And so that's just one way in which we know that the early church operated. And then Paul, after saying all of these names, all of these people, greeting all of them, he's going to say, greet one another with a holy kiss. Uh, this does not mean that today we kiss brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a cultural thing, which means uh, if you are someone who grew up in a culture where kissing was okay between relatives, you likely had to kiss your uncle uh, or your grandfather when they came over. Italians do this, right, when they greet one another. Uh, my family does this as well. It's a South African thing. It's South African culture. Most cultures in the Western world greet each other with handshakes and hugs. And so that's the way you could translate this, right? This is just like head coverings in 1 Corinthians with women, where he says women wear head coverings. That doesn't mean in our culture today all women should wear head coverings. That was a cultural thing that resembled respect. In some cultures, you bow when you greet one another. So this is just that culture's equivalent of greeting one another. And we know this because at one point in time, Jesus was hosted by a man during the Gospels, and the wo this woman comes in, and she washes his feet, and she kisses his feet, and everyone says, what's going on? And Jesus calls out the guy who's hosting him, and he says, I was in this house, but you didn't, you didn't kiss me, and you didn't wash my feet. So we know that these were cultural norms in Jewish and Gentile cultures of that world. And so we know that that was just like a handshake or a hug. It was just common practice thing to do. And so Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, the church, the church should be respectful to one another. We should all have fellowship together. So hug one another, handshake one another, like be in fellowship together. So it's kind of a cool thing. And so the application for this section, uh, there's two really cool things that I like about this. One uh, is it talks a lot about women in ministry. Now there's nine women specifically mentioned here. Five of them are mentioned in the capacity that they worked for the Lord. They're mentioned and commended for their labor on behalf of the Lord. Two of them are mentioned as single people, right? Prisca, or sorry, Persis, and then we also get uh, um, Phoebe, uh, who's the other one who mentioned alone. The other ones are most likely husband-wife pairs, but 
they're instrumental in the advancement of the early church. In fact, all of them have this history that you can trace throughout Acts and throughout other letters that Paul writes. And so women are highly needed in ministry, and there's a ton of ministry that women can do. And if it wasn't for them in the early church, people like Rufus's mother, uh, we wouldn't have people like Paul, right? We wouldn't have other ministries that develop out of that. So women in ministry is 100% something that Paul was on board for. In fact, he was all about it. And so uh, Paul commends these women. He says, go forth, do ministry, advance the gospel, work, labor, love theology, learn things about who Christ is, and then train other people up, right? In other letters to the church, Paul will talk about how older women should uh, teach younger women how to be in the faith, how to be respectful of the doctrines of the truth, and raise them up. And they should raise up even their own household as well in the faith. And we know that as a society, if your household isn't raised up in the faith, how quickly it can disintegrate and go to pieces. And so there's a huge amount of ministry to be done and a huge amount of ministry that is not being done right now. The other thing that we notice in this section is Paul's love for the early, early church. And the question is simple. Could you speak as highly of your church as Paul does of his early church? Could you speak that highly about those brothers and sisters who are in Christ with you? Do you love the body and those within the body as much as Paul does here? Often I think it's easy for us to talk about those people who we don't get along with in church or those people who've rubbed us the wrong way in church. Uh, but there's no mention of that here at all. In fact, Paul can only think of good things to say about these people. And he talks about how he loves them, how they've worked hard for the Lord. And he doesn't compare them to one another. He just says, like, out of the fruits of who you are in Christ, you have done faithful ministry. And I just think that's such a beautiful thing. And so uh, that's something I want to challenge us with is just to think about who you are in the Lord and could you commend others for who they are in the Lord? Can you identify who might be the modern-day equivalent in your church of Prisca and Aquila? Or who might be the Phoebe, right? Who are those people? So the second thing we're going to talk about is the warning. So in this next section, 17 through 19, we get this warning from Paul. Uh, and Paul is going to meditate on all those in Rome, and after he writes about all these people who he loves in Christ, the first thing that jumps into his mind is probably the number one thing that could destroy the Roman church, which is false teaching. And so as he's talking about how much he loves these people, how much he commends these people, he immediately jumps into a protective mode, and he says, and by the way, be warned of false teaching and all the dangers that you're going to face as a church. And I want you to know that to love someone is to protect them. It's to protect them in every way, to be on watch, to be on guard. Maybe sometimes in an annoying sense, but you know, uh, when I go outside and I was playing as a kid, my mom would constantly warn me of things like, don't run across the street without looking and uh, make sure you've eaten food before you go off to baseball practice and things like that. Like, overprotective, right? She just wants to keep you safe. And so if you love someone, uh, you want to keep them safe. It's just in your DNA. And so Paul, immediately upon reflecting how much he loves these people, he wants to keep them safe. And so he's going to warn them of the dangers that are ahead for them. Now, we know that false teachers were constantly a thorn in Paul's side in his ministry, uh, they were lot, not likely in Rome yet, which is why Paul doesn't identify people by name as he does in other letters. But we know that he thinks that they're on the horizon. If they're not there yet, they're going to come soon. And so the two people who Paul faces mostly in his ministry are the Gnostics in the early church and the Judaizers. But there's no specific name of any of these types of false teachings here. He just kind of glances at both of those directions. And so we'll take a look at that. Uh, but Paul's going to characterize essentially three different ways in which you can recognize false teaching. So we're going to look at them, and then we're going to think about how that applies for us as well. So in verse 17, we see, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. 
but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So this is Paul's warning about false teachers, and we're going to see three characteristics that identify who a false teacher is. One is uh, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine which you have been taught. Paul likely here is talking about the, the false gospel of the Judaizers, which added things to salvation. They added requirements to what was done on the cross by Jesus. And so these are the people who cause divisions, and they create obstacles for you to engage in what the gospel is. The Judaizers said you needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And there are modern-day equivalents of these things, but we know how Paul viewed them. In fact, if you turn to Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, this is such a good reading. I want you all to turn there with me. Galatians 1, 6 and 7. And we're going to see what Paul had to say about those who preached a false gospel. These are people who mess with the gospel of Christ. They are false teachers, and they are to be watched out for. And so in Galatians 1, 6 and 7, we get this picture of Paul. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul says, not that there is another gospel, but there are those who distort the gospel that I delivered you. What he says is there's no other gospel. There's only one gospel, and it's the gospel that you've originally been delivered. And then he goes on to say in verse 8, but if even if I or an angel from heaven comes and teaches you something different, don't listen to us. Paul here makes an argument for the authority of Scripture. He says even he himself doesn't have the authority to teach a different gospel. It has nothing to do with the authority of the person who delivers it. It has everything to do with the authority of the message. Paul even binds himself to the early writings and the early teachings that he's done. So he said, even I myself am beholden to Scripture and what it teaches. So there's nothing to do with authority here. It has everything to do with Paul's message that he delivered. So he says, even if I or an angel from heaven preaches to you another gospel. So Paul is very clear that there is only one gospel, and we should defend it, and we should not be fooled by any other gospels. There are definitely reasons to divide. We talked about this in uh, Unity in Romans 13, that there are some reasons to divide, there are some reasons not to divide. But one reason that is definitely true and why you should divide is anyone who distorts or denies the true gospel of Christ. The gospel is what we would call a first-tier issue. So if you get the gospel right, good. If you add or take away or create anything on top of the gospel and you say this is required for entrance into salvation, that is the people who you separate from, people who distort the gospel. And so here it's people who cause divisions or add to the gospel of Christ, and those people are to be avoided. As he says, uh, that you should avoid those people. The second characteristic of a false teacher is one who serves not God, but their own bellies. Uh, these are people that love their own fleshly passions. In fact, they're beholden to passions of the flesh. These are people who love money. They love sex. They love all the wealth and popularity that ministry and teaching might bring them. But they do not serve God, and they do not serve the holiness and the glory of who God is. In fact, these are people whose ministries and whose teaching terminates on the elevation of who people are, the elevation of money and wealth, and accumulation of status. But they have no care for the glory of God. It says they serve their own bellies. They serve their own fleshly appetites. In the same way in which you and I were hungry and our bellies drive us to go eat something, right? They're beholden to that feeling. They need to listen to what their flesh tells them to do. So this is a false teacher, someone who is beholden to themselves and they do not care at all about the glory of God. In fact, all good teaching 
points fully and finally to who God is and his glory. And so that's another way in which you can recognize false teaching. And the last way in which you can recognize false teaching is by smooth talk and flattery. Uh, Satan knows that his message has absolutely no power in and of itself. And so the only way this message is going to get across if, it's out, if it sounds good and it's very flattering. And so Paul says that smooth talk and flattery is the number one mark of a false teacher, right? Not only do they in tell you to engage in the lusts of the flesh, but even if they don't do those things, they'll say things that sound wonderful. They sound loving. They sound smooth. They sound good. And this is how Satan always, always has disguised his message, and he continues to do it in the early church, and he even continues to do that today. So what is smooth talk and flattery, and what does it look like? Well, to know that, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3 and find out what smooth talk and flattery look like. Genesis chapter 3, you might know where we're going with this. I want you to hold on with me because Satan has not changed his game in the last 2,000 years, 3,000 years, and he's not planning on doing it anytime soon either. It's the same game, always, smooth talk and flattery. So in Genesis chapter 3, we get a picture of the fall, and I'm going to read the first four verses, and we're going to look at what Satan does when he does smooth talk. Now we get this beautiful picture of creation, and the first thing that goes bad in Genesis is this sentence here. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. The word crafty is not a compliment. The word crafty is a very bad thing. Every other thing is good and wonderful and lovely, and Satan, the serpent, is crafty. And so now this is going to set the stage for what's about to happen. So you know when Satan talks, be on the lookout for what he says. And he, being Satan, says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, the first thing that false teaching does is it challenges the authority of what God said. And that's true of false teaching today. It challenges the authority of Scripture. Does Scripture actually say? Does Scripture actually apply to our context today? Is the word inerrant? Is the Bible true? Is it inspired? Did God say those things? It doesn't make sense with our culture, with our context, with what we know about people with what we know about science. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's a subtle attack on the authority of God's word. And then the woman responds, and she says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the, the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve here gives a response. She says, no, God said we could eat of any of the other trees, but we can't eat of this one, and we can't touch it, right? We can't touch that tree. And the serpent's going to go ahead and challenge the woman again. He's going to say, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. See, the first thing Satan does is, an out, is a subtle assault on what God said. And the second thing he says is, cosmic treason doesn't merit death. If you betray a holy and righteous God, he's not going to kill you. God loves you. He's not going to hurt you. He's not going to cast you away. You're so precious. You will not surely die. And that's not a message that we hear from outside of the church today. That's a message we hear from inside of the church. Don't worry about that sin. It won't kill you. God loves you more, and so you don't have to repent of that sin. You can engage in that sin. You can partake in that sin because it won't kill you. You will not surely die. It's smooth. It sounds good. You're telling me I can engage in that and still be with God? 
You're telling me I can eat of the tree that God told me I shouldn't eat of and that I can still be in fellowship with him? It's deception. It's smooth talk and flattery. Don't worry that sin won't kill you. That's what smooth talk and flattery is. And so we combat evil in a very simple and straightforward way. Paul says, be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Here's how you don't combat false teaching, is get entrenched in every doctrine that false teaching teaches and try to figure out how it's wrong. You see, you don't need to be an expert on everything that false teachers claim. You don't need to be an expert on every false doctrine that's out there. You just need to know the one true doctrine. The best way to recognize a counterfeit bill is to know what a real one looks like. And you can tell every counterfeit out there that there is. If you're saturated in God's word and you know what it says, it's pretty easy to recognize something that doesn't say that same thing, right? It's pretty easy to recognize distortions of the word of God. In John 10, three through five, Jesus says, my sheep, they know my voice. And any other shepherd that walks into that sheepfold, when they start talking, my sheep will run away because they do not know the voice of an outsider. You see, the sheep don't need to know every single other voice that they're going to have to encounter. They only need to know the voice of their one shepherd. And if they know the voice of that one shepherd, they can hold up any other voice to that one, and they can say, that's not the same one. I'm going to run away from that. And so my sheep know my voice. Do you know what the word of God says? Do you know what his voice is teaching? Do you know his word well enough to say that if I know the truth of what this Bible says, I could compare it to anything else out there, and if it doesn't hold up, it's not true. You see, the problem with most people when they encounter false teaching is they get zealous for the truth so much so that they seek false teaching in every single thing that's out there. And that's not a good way to do it because so, you so often get so entrenched in what false teachers teach that you start seeing false teaching everywhere and you can't get away from it. And so many people go to seminary and they hear about false teaching and they start studying it and they become this, this old crank really quickly. And they, they just start calling out false teaching everywhere. And that's not what you need to do. He says, be wise as to what is good. Know the word of God well enough. Be wise to what is good, but innocent to what is evil. Don't, you don't have to worry about evil. If you know what is good, you can recognize evil. But you don't have to study evil. You don't have to be saturated in evil. You can recognize it pretty easily if you know what is good. When, call, when Paul combats false teaching, he declares the same victory that God does in Genesis 3, chapter 15, when he curses the serpent for what the serpent said to Eve. For the serpent's deception of Eve, God says this, and then Paul says this in verse 20. He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You see, the God of peace is Jesus. And when God declares it in Genesis, it's also true here now. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel that we ever hear in Scripture. is preached in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, The serpent will crush the offspring of the woman, he will bruise his heel and the, the offering of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so Jesus does when he comes. And he comes in a mighty way as a child in a manger. And he lives his holy and perfect life and then he dies a death on a cross. And in dying that death on the cross, he completely obliterates the power of sin. He crushes everything that beheld you before. He crushes the sin nature and he makes uh, salvation available to anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. He says, by the way, if you hear my call and you recognize my voice and you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Jesus encounters the evil one and he defeats sin outright. He breaks the power of sin and everything that sin holds us to. And God has already won. And through Jesus' righteousness, Satan was crushed under 
our feet. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet to the church in Rome. That's not that they have anything special about them. They have the imputed righteousness of Christ that they put on and they wear. And because of Christ's righteousness, they can now crush Satan and his power. It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with the God who provided that victory. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, is what he closes with there. And then in verse 21 through 23, we're going to get a nice little closing here about the people who were with Paul when he wrote this letter. Paul closes his greeting by naming those who are traveling with him, and we're reminded that Paul was not alone ever in his ministry. Paul always had companions to combat sin and false teaching, and he was never alone. And Christians, by the way, should never be alone. There's no good reason to be alone in the faith walk. In verse 21 through 23, we see, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sophater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is the host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Timothy is Paul's disciple. Paul discipled Timothy throughout most of Paul's ministry. And then Paul eventually raises Timothy up to be a pastor at the church of Ephesus. And Timothy faithfully serves at that position and loves his people and defends against false teaching. And eventually, Timothy's ministry pays off. And we know that Timothy was established in the Lord. So Paul here has someone who he's discipling with him. And Paul, even though he's doing missions, he's doing ministry, he's getting after it. He's not so blind to the world around him that he's not carrying someone else with him and discipling up young Timothy and training him in the faith to be launched out. Because when Paul dies, he knows somebody else is going to have to take over. And if you can die and you can't be replaced in the church, that's a bad thing. You should be discipling someone who can always replace you. In the church, you should always be working yourself out of whatever job you're doing, right? You disciple someone who can disciple someone else because that's what we've all been. We've been discipled, right? That's why we're at where we're at now. So Timothy was that for Paul. And Lucius, uh, we don't know who this is. It could be a Lucius who's mentioned in Acts. It could also likely be Luke, who was Paul's travel companion for a lot of his ministry. Uh, Lucius is the same uh, in Greek as Lucas, uh, who then could be translated as Luke. But we don't know for sure. Uh, if it is Luke, it's the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. If it's not Luke, then we just don't know who Lucius is. But he's a guy who's traveling with Paul, which is pretty cool. Uh, Jason, we hear about in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 9, uh, Jason housed Paul in Thessalonica. And in fact, when Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica, an angry mob raised up and dragged not only Paul in front of the city officials, but they also dragged Jason out in front of the city officials. And they said, can you get these guys to stop preaching the gospel? And uh, they didn't. So that's who Jason is. And now we know that Jason is a representative traveling with Paul on mission to the church in Jerusalem. So Jason was such a faithful Gentile, he's going to go get to meet the apostles. That's where he's headed to for his faithful ministry. And Sosiphater, we also hear about in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, he is one of the noble Bereans, who when Paul encountered them, they searched the scripture to see if what he was saying was true. And now Sosiphater is on his way to meet the apostles in the church in Jerusalem for his faithful ministry. These are representatives who are going to carry out, and on behalf of the fund that Paul is bringing to the church in Rome, or to the church in Jerusalem, they are going to, on behalf of all the Gentiles, present this fund to the church in Jerusalem. And so these guys get to be there when this goes down. And so that's, I think that's really cool. And so they're delegates. They're traveling with Paul um, from the Gentile churches. So on behalf of the various churches that they're a part of, they're going to go and represent those churches with Paul. And then we hear a guy named Tertius, who's the scribe for most of Paul's letters. Uh, 
Which brings about an interesting question about the inspiration of Scripture, uh, which you could wrestle with on your own a little bit about what all that means because Paul dictated this letter and then Tertius wrote the letter and also the Holy Spirit was involved somehow. Um, I'm not going to figure all that out. I can't figure that all out, how that works. Uh, God is sovereign and we, we just don't know how that all works together. But somehow this letter was inspired. We affirm it to be so. And Tertius wrote the whole thing. And then here in verse 22, Tertius writes without Paul's voice. He says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And it's still inspired. So the Holy Spirit is able to overcome even if Paul's not writing the letter to the church in Rome. But Paul had terrible handwriting. And most of his letters, he says, you can tell it's me writing right now because it's my big handwriting, right? He's that guy. So that's why he had to get a scribe. And Paul can't do everything on his own in ministry. And uh, that was evidenced by Tertius, who was faithful to do a pretty menial task. And we all benefit from the fact that he is faithful to a very menial task, such as transcribing word for word what Paul says. It's pretty cool. And then Gaius uh, is a host at the church in Corinth. Gaius isn't traveling with the rest of them. Gaius is just hosting them while they're in Corinth. So Gaius would have probably been in the same church as uh, Phoebe and some of the other people who are mentioned. Uh, We hear about Gaius in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 14. Uh, What's unique about him is Paul baptized this guy. Paul is now staying in the house of a guy who he baptized in faith, which is an awesome fruit of ministry. And then the last guy we hear about here is Erastus. Uh, He's the city treasurer in Corinth. Uh, he's a real historical person. And we know about him because you can go to where Corinth was today and you can see an, an inscription that was written on the pavement because Erastus was so wealthy that he laid down like a whole street in that city. And then they inscribe credit to Erastus and what he did for them. So Erastus was a relatively rare name in the early church. So we know that this is probably the same guy. So Erastus was wealthy. And this brings up the idea, by the way, Erastus is the city treasurer and later he becomes like a government official in the city which is the Erastus that's credited with paving the road. And this brings about the question, can a Christian serve in government, especially in maybe a Roman government that has slaves and that doesn't obey the law of God? In fact, they're a very pagan government. And to answer this question, you could turn with me to 2 Kings briefly. And we're going to look at a guy named Naaman, or Nahum. No, it's Naaman. Now I got to double check it's Naaman. I got it right the first time. (laughs) Naaman, uh, who is a guy who serves a wicked king in the Old Testament. And Naaman was not a believer when he started service with this king. And Naaman is actually part of the governing force that's occupying and oppressing the people of Israel at this current moment in time. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15, you can pick up with this story. Naaman had leprosy. He goes to seek the prophet, Elisha. And he says, Elisha, can you heal me? I hear here God can do some cool things. Can you heal me? And Elisha doesn't even go out to see Naaman. He sends out his servant, and Elisha tells his servant, hey, go tell that guy to bathe in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman gets mad because he's like second in command to the current ruler at the time over the people of Israel. And he gets mad, and he walks away, and then his servants convince him to turn back and go bathe in the Jordan River. So Naaman humbles himself and does that, and he's healed by God in the Jordan River. And then he turns around and he goes to Elisha and he gets Elisha to come out and he talks to him and he says, Behold, I now know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. You see, out of the blessing that Elisha did to him, he wants to go ahead and bless Elisha's ministry. But Elisha doesn't accept the blessing. He says, I don't, want to, I don't want your money. I didn't do it for money. I just did it to be faithful to what the word of the Lord is. And this confession is really interesting because Naaman is saying not your God is mighty, like other gods are, he says there is no God in all the earth 
but the God in Israel, which is a crazy declaration. And so after he gets converted to faith, you can read down later on in this chapter, down into verse uh, 18 and 19. He says, in this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. You see what he's talking about is he now has to go back and serve that same king. And that king is going to make offerings to his false gods. And Naaman is going to have to carry out other work in that government that's oppressing God's people. So he seeks the counsel of Elisha. And he says, now pardon your servant in this matter. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He's basically asking, can I go back and serve in my position in government. And Elisha says, go in peace to be faithful to God in the place in which you've been appointed. You see, God is sovereign over any government, even a wicked one, even a good government God is sovereign over, and he has his way every single time, whether he gets those people to be Christians and then get them in government, or whether they're in government and then he converts them to faith. Either way, he's going to get his way. So it's possible to be a Christian and be in government. just want you to know that. And then we get this guy named Cordus. We know nothing about Cordus. He's like an unknown guy. But Cordus is in there. So, so we get uh, this last closing here, and then I'll pray over us uh, when the worship team is going to come up and sing. Uh, but we get a few applications here. We see that um, in this passage, I really hope that it's been brought alive to you, that it's not just a list of names. Uh, this is a rich history of the church in Rome, of the church of the Gentile people, and it's all of the people that Paul has done ministry with. So this is not Paul the theologian. This is not Paul the, mi- the missionary. This is now Paul like the pastor, the guy who loves all the other people, and all the other people probably share that same affection for Paul. So I hope that passage is alive to you. I hope that you have now been convinced not to skip those long sections of names in your Bible, but you can study it further and investigate it a little bit. Uh, you see the personal touch of who Paul is and what he does in ministry. The second thing I want you to see is that uh, it's okay to be on mission for Christ and to love other people. Mission for Christ does not require you to be so productive that you don't have time for other people in your life. Okay? The other thing is that if you are one of these people who's not serving as a pastor or as a missionary, uh, that does not abate you of your responsibility to be on mission for Christ. Every one of these people who's mentioned, save for like a handful of them, was just local people who did their jobs and they were part of the church. And they faithfully did work, like discipling other people, potentially hosting church, doing all kinds of things for God. So be on mission for Christ and do it faithfully, regardless of what status or what place you have in the church. Just be faithful to what you've been given. Be like Tertius, who gets the job of scribe and does it faithfully for our benefit. And then uh, the last thing is to be wise and discerning false teaching. I pray all the time that you guys would be wise and you would not be fooled or deceived by false teaching. Be in God's word. That's the number one way to get out of false teaching, to get away from it, to be able to recognize the difference between good and bad teaching. And you need to be discipled also to discern false teaching. You see, one of the ways in which we know that we're not going off track is because we have other people who are faithful to God, who are walking alongside us, and who can call us out when we start to deviate. That's one of the ways in which that happens. So be accountable to somebody. Have someone who's in your life who cares enough to the point where you're like, I don't really like you asking hard questions anymore. That's okay. You be faithful. And you submit yourself to them. And they will probably submit themselves to you. So you can do life with other believers who are on mission to be holy and to pursue God and to experience him together. Be discipled. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word for us this evening. I thank you for what you have wrote uh, in ages past in your scripture. Lord, I thank you that you are over Satan in victory, that we can go from a place of victory for what you've done on our behalf. 
Lord, I pray that you would guard us, guard our hearts, guard our minds from false teaching. I pray that you would bind us together in love for one another, personally, intimately. Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds opportunities to serve, to serve your kingdom, to serve other people in your body. I pray that all of us would be able to be faithful to our mission, to our calling that you've placed on us, Lord. And I pray more so than anything else that we would love you for your word and to glorify you for what you have written in here for us. And I pray all of these things, Lord, in your name. Amen.